The scripture reading from this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll be reading the whole chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Father Paul writes in clear language that these three things are above all of the other things that he mentions in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And I want to pray now, Father, that you would continue your work of molding this church into a church where love is at the heart of who we are as a people and how we act toward one another as a people. You've done so much, Father, over the years to establish us in truth, and I pray that you would continue to do that. I pray that we would be a people of the Word for as long as this church exists. And I pray that we would be the kind of people who look to truth, not just as a bunch of information that we can use against others or to puff ourselves up. As Paul said in another place, knowledge puffs up. I pray that you would keep that far from us. And yet at the same time, I do pray that you would continue to root us and ground us and establish us in truth. But now in these days, Father, it seems to me to be so apparent that you are seeking now to root us and ground us in love, and I pray that you would do that. Oh, how I pray that the atmosphere of grace and love and mercy would absolutely characterize glory of Christ fellowship. Come now, Father, I pray. Use 1 Corinthians 13 to teach us. Use it to inspire us and use it to cause us to act in the ways of love. For the glory of your name and the good of the whole church, we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, as you know, over the last few months, we've been talking about koinonia in the life of the church, or what might be called our commonness of life. Since we are all in Christ, each of us has all of the most important things in life together in common. And so we've been talking a lot about what that means and what that looks like. 
Several weeks ago, we began to ask the question, how does God actually develop koinonia inside of a church? How does He come among a people just like us in everyday ways and, 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 and everyday times and shape us into the body, shape us into the bride, grow us into the temple? How does He do this? And to get our answer, we've turned mainly to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, where we saw four steps there. I'll just go over these very quickly. First of all, we saw that God appoints leadership in the church, godly, humble leadership. And then secondly, He commands those leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not to live for themselves, but to live, to bless, and to encourage others to play their parts. Number three, he commands every person in the church then to play their role that they were designed to play so that, number four, the church can be built up in love all the way to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I take that to mean to come all the way into the fullness of what Christ has intended for us, that we might become the body, that we might become the bride, that we might become the temple as every single part does its part so crucial to me that we understand that the, the leaders are not responsible for building up the church. We just have one little part, and that's to equip. And then each of us has to play our part, and as each of us plays our part, that's how the church is built up in love. This is a beautiful vision. It's just absolutely a, a beautiful thing, and I'm so pleased to watch the Lord actually creating this among us in these days. Last week, in the context of all this, we began a conversation about spiritual gifts, because that topic is so important to this whole movement of God, not just at glory of Christ, but around the world and in His church at large. And the main thing we saw there, you can see in chapter 12 and verse 7, is that the purpose of spiritual gifts is this, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. In other words, spiritual gifts are not given to us, supernatural enablings, and I don't just mean uh, fancy things at that point. I think to do the will of God at any level takes a supernatural enabling. Folding bulletins according to the will of God takes a supernatural enabling to do that with the right motives. And so whatever God enables you to do, it's intended to glorify His name and build up the whole church. It's not intended to draw attention to the gifts themselves. It's not intended to draw attention to those using the gifts. The whole point of the Spirit granting us resources and granting us gifts is to glorify His name and build up the whole church. That's the punch of 1 Corinthians 12.7 and probably the punch of the whole letter to, uh, the first letter to the Corinthians at least. And how I pray that as we get into more and more of the details of this doctrine in the coming weeks, how I pray that we'll keep that target in mind. That we'll keep our eyes on the bullseye and not get distracted by all kinds of things about spiritual gifts, which would be very easy to do. There's a lot of things to be distracted by. But at the center of it all is this truth, that God gives us what we need to glorify His name and build up the church. It's really that simple. And how I pray that the Lord would allow us to, to keep all of that in mind. Now building on that, Paul expands his thought in the rest of chapter 12. He shows that no one is superior, no one is inferior. And at the end of chapter 12, he, he, he highlights the hierarchy of gifts, if you will. Please look with me at verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, and the obvious answer is no to all those questions. Now, these words, first, second, 
third, and so on, to me, clearly communicate that Paul is actually laying out a hierarchy of gifts here. I think he's saying that apostles have authority over the rest, and then prophets, and then teachers, and so on. And it is a little confusing to say, Paul, if you just said no one's superior, no one's inferior, why are you talking about the order of these things now? And I think he's simply saying God is a God of order. God fashions the body in a particular way, and yet every part is absolutely crucial, and each part has to play its part. And then he says in verse 31, he says, Now, earnestly desire what? The higher gifts, right? Earnestly desire the higher gifts. If you're not reading carefully, you could think that he means seek to get yourself up as high on that list as you possibly can. Would it be possible to read it that way? Try to be a teacher. If you can't be a teacher, be a prophet. If you can't be a prophet, try to push into the apostle level. Get up as high as you can. But that is not what Paul's saying. That is not what he's saying. He has a a more excellent way in mind. And that's what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 13 today. And all of us already know it. That more excellent way is love. It's the whole point of 1 Corinthians in my mind. And so look with me, if you will, at chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels even, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And... If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. I think Paul in these verses is going to an extreme to prove a point. I think that he's saying even if a person has the kinds of gifts that we consider to be pretty impressive in the church, tongues and prophecy and the kind of faith that moves mountains, you probably know of people like that. George Mueller is coming to my mind now. There are many others. That kind of great faith that does great things, that thanks God for food that's not even on the table and then boom, the doorbell rings and here comes food. We really exalt that kind of gift. But if you have all those kinds of gifts and you don't have love, your gifts mean nothing, and you yourself are nothing. I think Paul is going to this kind of extreme to make a point because he's speaking to believers in 1 Corinthians. He's not addressing non-believers. I don't think he thinks that anybody in the church actually acts from a, a zero motive of love. I think Paul knows that we're all a mixed bag, and that all of us, because we're not yet perfected in Christ, we do things with mixed motives, right? So yes, we do teach from a motive of love. Praise God for that. But we also teach from self-centered motives as well. Yes, we do lead singing and and worship and do public things from a motive of love. And hopefully increasingly so. But we do them with selfish motives as well, if we're being honest with our hearts. We set up chairs and we serve meals and we do all kinds of things in the life of the church with a motive of love. And it's, it's real. There really is love there. But then there's also self-centered motives as, as well because none of us are fully formed into the image of Christ, right? We're all, what I'm saying is a mixed bag. We all have mixed motives. And Paul's a very wise leader. He's a wise pastor. He spent a lot of time with people. He knows people. He knows the people of God, and he knows that none of us has pure motives, and yet he's trying to drive this point home to us. The value of a person in the life of the church derives from love, not gifts. 
It does not matter how high or impressive your gift is. If you have not love, you are nothing. Or if I could put the focus on the gift, the value of every other gift in the body derives from its relationship to love. If you don't have love, the other gift becomes valueless. If you have love, that gift becomes more valuable. So this morning, if I teach from a 70% motive of love, I'll have a 70% value in the church today. If whoever came this morning and set up all the chairs and the tables and all the other stuff that had to be done, if you did that with an 80% motive of love, you had 80% value in the church this morning. Now I know that it doesn't work all that cleanly. I know it's not exactly a formula. And yet the point remains. Everything we do... Every gift we have derives its value from love. Period. The more love, the more value. The less love, the less value. That's what Paul is trying to say. Love in the life of the church is like an engine in the life of a car. It's pretty important. Think about it. You can have a nice car. Paint job, perfect. Seats, leather, maybe even heated. The other day, Kim's grandma, we were driving to the... to. Uh, some meeting about her grandfather. Her grandmother got in our car and felt the heated seat and hadn't felt that in a long time. And it kind of surprised her. And she enjoyed that. It's, it's nice. There's all the accoutrements in the car that you would like. But if the car doesn't have an engine, guess what? The car is nothing, right? What will be the point of all that stuff if the car doesn't have an engine? Every other thing in the car in some way derives its value from the engine because the engine is the thing that causes the car to fulfill its purpose. Namely, to get you from point A to point B. Or if we stick with the metaphor of a body, love in the life of a church is like the heart inside of a body. It's good to have hands and a head and feet and all the other stuff and to seek health in your body. But if you don't have a heart that's pumping the blood and making the body live, what's the point, right? What's the point? The rest of the body in some sense derives its value from the heart because the heart is what causes the rest to fulfill its purpose. And love in the life of the church is just like that. It's not the only thing in the church, but it is the key that causes everything else in the life of the church to fulfill its purpose. Now, let's say, let's stick with the, the, the metaphors here for a second. Let's say that your car has six pistons. Now, for those of you who are mechanically challenged, the pistons are the thing in an engine that goes up and down and, and creates power inside the car. Let's say you have six of those in your car, but only four of them are working. I know from personal experience, because I've had many beaters in my life, that you can actually drive a car with four pistons. How many of you have had to try to do that before? I know I have. And it'll work. It won't get you there as fast, and it might not take you as far, but it'll actually work. It will still, in some sense, fulfill its purpose. If a heart is partially clogged, you won't have all the energy that you need. You won't have all the health in your body that you need, but you can still function. You can still move about. You can still serve others. To some extent, you can still fulfill your purpose, just not to the fullness of what you were intended to be. And we are all like that as Christians. The truth of the matter is that we're not all firing on, on all of our pistons, right? There might be eight pistons in my life, but I'm only firing on five or six of them right now. There's two or three of them that are absolutely not working, and that's not good, but it's just the case. So I take what I got and I do the best that I can. My heart's not pumping as good as it can. And so that's not a good thing, but we're moving along, we're making progress, we're doing the best we can with what we have. We all have mixed motives. 
Some of our motives derive from love. Some of them derive from self-centeredness, from self-focus. But the point here is that our value in our families, in this church, at work, in the world, for the glory of Christ and the good of others is derived from love. More love, more value, less love, less value. Oh, how I pray that we will learn this lesson and learn it well here this morning. Now, if love has that important of a place in the life of the church, then a question arises that I think has to be answered. Namely, what is love? A lot of different views of what love is out there today. I think that's why Paul wrote verses 4 through 12. So let's look at them now. Paul writes, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In these verses, Paul lists 15 traits, if you count them, Carefully, there's 15 things there. In my view, 14 of them kind of fit together. And then another one communicates another idea. The first 14 are found in verses 4 to 7. So let me say a few words about those now. I don't want to go through and describe each trait. We don't have time to do that. I am writing up a little description of every single trait there from my, from my Greek study. And I hope to have that available for you next week in, in case you want to uh, look into this a little bit farther. But for this morning, what I want to do is draw your attention to the seventh trait which appears in verse 5, right after the word rude. The ESV translates it, love does not insist on its own way. Now, the King James and the New King James and the NESB actually translate that a little bit better. They render it, love does not seek its own. And the reason I think that's a better translation is because the, the Greek literally reads, love does not seek the things of itself. Love does not Seek the things of itself. I think that's the key that helps us to understand all of the other things that Paul has said about love here. Let me explain. Love is patient because love is not seeking the things of itself. And since love isn't seeking the things of itself, it can wait for you. It can be patient with you. When you irritate it, it can handle it because it's not seeking the things of itself. It's not all about itself. It's not looking at you to fulfill its needs. It's praying, how can I fulfill your needs? Love is patient because it's not seeking the things of itself. Love doesn't boast because it's not seeking the things of itself and it's not trying to puff itself up over others. It's trying to build others up right along with itself so it doesn't have any need to boast. Love endures all things because it's not seeking the things of itself and it's willing to suffer. Love does not make a God of its own comfort. And so if I have to endure pain to bless you, I will do it. I will do it. Love does not seek the things of itself. So, children, let me 
use you as an example just for a second. Let's say that you're playing with your friends or maybe your siblings and you let them use one of your toys. I bet you you've said this at times before. Selfishness would say, give me my toy back and give me my toy back now. I want to play with my toy. That's what selfishness does. Because selfishness is seeking the things of itself. But love says, no, if you want to play with my toy longer, no problem. I've got a thousand other toys over here anyway. I'll play with those things. You play with that toy. Love is not seeking the things of itself. Sports fans, hockey fans, Canadians. Here's another example. The Canadians just beat the Americans in the Olympics. And now I heard a story the other day that up in Canada there was a hockey game and the Canadians were boasting so loud during our national anthem that you couldn't even hear the national anthem. That's what selfishness does. It seeks the things of itself. It says, we won and we're going to silence you. We're going to shove it in your face. Even if in fun, we're going to boast and boast and boast over you. That's not how love thinks. Love doesn't have to boast. Even when love wins the game, it doesn't boast over the other. It congratulates the other. It says, you did a good job. I'll bet you you'll get us next time. Love doesn't seek the things of itself. So when there's a victory in the life of love, it doesn't have to shove it in the face of somebody else. Finally, if you're in the business world, uh, selfishness would say, how can I go into work today and manipulate the situation to gain more power and make more money so that I can buy more stuff? But love would say, how can I serve this company today? How can I make it a better place today? And if I do make more money today, how can I use that for the glory of God and the good of others? Love is never seeking the things of itself. This is why love is patient. This is why love is kind. This is why it doesn't boast and all the rest. Because love is not about itself. Love is about the other. And how I pray that that lesson will stick with us as it's been sticking with me the last couple weeks as I've been studying these things. As I've been going to make decisions or, or do whatever I've been doing, the Lord's just been whispering into my heart over and over again, Charlie, love does not seek the things of itself. And I've just found that so helpful. I found it such a helpful way to direct my heart in the path of love rather than to re- direct my heart toward myself. Now, I want to share something with you, a little exercise that I've done that has blessed me so much over the years and has helped me sort of assess where I'm at with love in my life and where love is with regard to my gifting inside of the church. And here's what I have in mind. If you go to verse 4 and work all the way to verse 7, and everywhere you see the word love, just insert your name right there. So if I was doing this, I would read it this way. Charlie is patient and kind. Charlie does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. Charlie does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. Charlie does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Charlie bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Or if you want to check yourself with the use of a particular gift, my wife's a teacher, so I'll pick on her. She would say that Kim... Uh, when she is teaching, she is patient and she is kind and she does not envy and she does not boast. So if you put that in there with a particular gifting, then that will also help you see. Now, admittedly, if you do this honestly, it will be pretty convicting because the truth of the matter is that the pattern of our life and the pattern of love are kind of out of whack with each other, right? None of us is like this with the pattern of love. None of us fits it exactly. We're all out of whack and we're not 
all living in just the way that we should. But I think that Paul deliberately wants us to take texts like this personally and see that we're out of whack because he wants us to see that no matter what you think about spiritual gifts and no matter what your spiritual gifts are in the life of the church, if they're out of whack with love, they lose their value. If they get into line with the pattern of love, they greatly, greatly, greatly increase in value. And so even if it's hard, even if it's convicting at times, I think he wants us to to see where we actually are with love. Now here's another thing that you could do to help grace pour over you when the sense of conviction rises. Go back to verse 4 and read this over again. But now this time, every time you see the word love, insert the word God. John says in 1 John 4 two times that God is love, and so I think it's fair to do this and read this text to say, God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on His own way. God is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now the pattern of God's life is perfectly fitting with the pattern of love. This is part of what it means to say that God is love. Everything He does issues out of a motive of love. The patterns are perfectly lined up. And the reason that this gives us hope when our life is more like that is because when our life is like that, guess what? God is patient with us. God is kind toward us. He does not boast over us. He is not proud over us. He bears all things in our lives. He endures all things in our lives. And beloved, the hope that we have is that one day at a time, one step at a time, He will mold us little by little by little until the pattern of our life matches with the pattern of love. And He will not give up on us. By the way, I think this is what it means to say that you're being molded into the image of Christ. Jesus is patient, and so He molds you until you're patient. Jesus is kind, and so He molds you until you become kind. He doesn't boast, so He molds you so that you will not boast, or so that you will not brag, or so that you will endure all things. And the more He pours His life through you and shapes His life inside of you, the pattern of your life becomes the pattern of love and you're shaped into the image of His Son. This is the hope that we have. Even though our motives are out of whack and love is not where it should be, the grace of God will pour over us and His own kindness will shape us into His image. So, replacing the word love with your name can tend to have a a sense of conviction arise in your heart, but hopefully replacing the word love with God's name will let His grace and His mercy pour down upon us because, amen, others will give up on us. We might even give up on ourselves, but God will never give up on us. Amen? I'm telling you the truth. God will never give up on you. He said so in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will do what? He will complete it all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. This is the hope we have. You look at that list and your life feels like this, maybe even like this. Totally out of whack. But by the grace of God in Christ, one day, I promise you, this will be you. And the pattern of love and the pattern of your life will definitely match up. Now Paul says one more thing about love in 8-12. to I don't want to spend a lot of time on this and we don't need to reread the verses. But basically, what he's saying is that prophecy, tongues, knowledge, and other things like that, these things are going to pass away. 
They're going to give in to their fulfillment someday and they're just going to pass away. So why would we spend all of our time arguing about things and seeking things that are not even going to last anyway? Why would we do that? God, yes, He gives them to us as gifts, but they're temporary. What's the thing that lasts? The thing that lasts is love. Love never ends. Love gives way to love. Love only increases in intensity. It only grows and grows and grows. And so I'm sure that the point Paul is trying to drive home here is, beloved, seek love. Seek love. Don't seek the other things, even other things that are good. Above everything else, seek love, because those things derive their value from love anyway. This leads Paul to his most famous conclusion in verse 13. Many people who aren't even believers know this verse. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We're standing now with Paul at the top of a very high peak, and we could call that peak 1 Corinthians. He has taken us there step by step by step, and now we've climbed all the way up to the top. We're looking out over the valley, and I have to ask the question, why has Paul put forth so much effort in writing, in thinking, in praying, in all that he did to bring us up to this most high peak of love? Why has he done this? Why has he taken so much pains to talk about spiritual gifts and and lay out a variety of issues to lead us to this pinnacle point that love is the highest gift of all? And I think that the answer is this. Paul has put forth all of this effort simply to show us that love is the key to all the other gifts. Love is the thing that makes everything else work. Love is the thing that causes the gifts of the Spirit to manifest the Spirit among us. Love is the thing that causes the gifts to build up the whole church and not just exalt the individual. In other words, love is the key to understanding 1 Corinthians 12.7. That to each one of us is given a gift to manifest the Spirit and build up the church. The only way that happens is by love. To the extent that love is there, the gifts will fulfill their purpose. To the extent that it's not there, the gifts will not fulfill their purpose. So, if I could put all that in one sentence, and I'll come back and deal with this at more length next week, but I would put it in these words. Love is the highest gift because it is the key that causes all the other gifts to manifest the Spirit and build up the church. This is the pinnacle of 1 Corinthians. I think this is the heartbeat, the thing that Paul's just longing for the Corinthians to get. You remember, in their use of gifts, they were just fighting with each other, trying to be better than each other, all this. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. Love is the key to all the gifts because it is the thing that makes all the other gifts manifest the Spirit and build up the whole church. That is the point. And so I want to end today where Paul begins in chapter 14. And simply say this, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. I'll come back to that second part later. But this morning I just want to end where Paul begins and say, pursue love. The word he uses there is very strong. Often in the, in the New Testament it's, it's translated persecute. So what this means is pursue something with a hot passion. Pursue love as though it's an enemy that you're not going to rest until you see destroyed. Go after this thing, beloved. Go after love with everything in you and don't settle for anything less. Let there be a hot pursuit in your heart for love. Yes, have a zeal for spiritual gifts, but you should have a hot pursuit for love and for nothing else but love because it's the thing that causes everything else 
to matter. And so I just want to encourage you once more to do that exercise that I that I suggested. Take some time, take your journal, whatever you do, and get with God and just put your name into 1 Corinthians 4, 13, 4-7. Put God's name in there and let's see what He would do. And let me pray now. Father, how I pray that the end result of this message would be an increase of the percentage of love in the life of this church. Oh, how I pray that every single thing we do here, from teaching the Word of God to setting up chairs and everything else in between, how I pray that all of it would be filled with love and more and more so as the days go by. Please help us, Father, to rightly think about these things and to rightly live inside of these things. Please come now, I pray, and create in us the church that you're dreaming for us to be. In the great and gracious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.